0: From APM, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. This week, I'm joined by APM senior economics contributor Chris Farrell, who has some trivia questions about financial literacy that are not trivial. Hi, Chris. Stephen, let me ask you three questions. These are personal finance
1: questions. All right. See if you can get them right. All right. First one, you have $100 in a savings account. The interest rate is 2% a year. After five years... How much money would you have in the account if you left the money to grow? A, more than $102. B, exactly $102. Or C, less than $102. Or D, do not know, refuse to answer.
0: Well, I'm uh, tempted to refuse to answer, Chris, but I'm going to go with A, more than $102. Excellent. And is that because of compounding interest?
1: That is because of compounding interest. All right. I can tell. This, this is going to be easy. All right. Question number two. Imagine you have a savings account and it has uh, an interest rate of 1% a year. Inflation is running at 2% a year. After one year, how much would you be able to buy with the money in this account? A, more than today. B, exactly the same. Or C, less than today.
0: Less than today. Excellent.
1: Last question. True or False. Buying a single company stock usually gives a safer return than a stock mutual
0: fund. Well, I know the answer to this because you've been telling me the answer to this when we go and get coffee for, what, the last 20 years now?
1: And you you have learned. Diversify. Diversify. Index
0: fund. Index fund. So a mutual (laughs) fund is much better than buying, from your perspective, a single company stock.
1: Absolutely. So you passed. You got all three right. Right. But here's the thing, Stephen, Uh, there's a large percentage of Americans did not. I mean, these questions come from a survey of Americans 50 or older. It's by two economists, one at George Washington University and the other at the University of Pennsylvania. And then they took these survey results and they did it to the broader population. And in essence, only one-third, only one-third of the people who were surveyed answered all three questions correctly.
0: Hmm. Well, okay, fine. Why are we talking about it on an education podcast?
1: Because I think this points out the need to bring personal finance education into the high school system. That when someone graduates from high school or is heading off into college, you know, pretty quickly they can have credit cards. They might have student loan debt if they're going to college. Even though young people are buying fewer cars, still a lot of young people are buying cars. And by the way, have you ever looked at the ads when they're selling a car? They never tell you what is the total cost of your borrowing. It's always, you know, this is so easy. It's so cheap. You know, we got this low monthly cost. And so I think to prepare young people for the world of finance, where the merchants of debt are so smart about masking the true cost of debt and sort of, you know, promoting its convenience that... We must have personal finance education in the high schools so that students are prepared for the real
0: world. Where would you situate that, in a math class, in a home economics class?
1: So if you look around the country where uh, personal finance uh, classes are being taught, like at a place in Minnesota, it typically is is put into social studies which is where it was in Virginia, in Minnesota, maybe in the math class where you learn about compound interest. There are five states that require uh, personal finance courses be taken before you can graduate. Most other states, it's a looser standard. And then some states just have no standard whatsoever.
0: Is there evidence that personal finance classes in high school actually lead people to having better economic life afterwards, uh, piling up less debt?
1: The studies say, yes, there's a weak effect Yes, it's positive. It's going in the right direction. If you think taking these courses is going to lead everybody to have a really good credit score, understand credit card debt, know how the student loan system works, and not take on too much debt and save a lot of money, it falls short by that standard. But when you're comparing young high school graduates over a longer period of time who have gone through these required courses versus young high school graduates who have not had to take any personal finance courses, the evidence is Financial literacy pays off.
0: A lot of high school teachers are saying they're being required to do too much already uh, in class. Who's behind this kind of effort other than you?
1: (laughs) Well, isn't that enough? I mean, (laughs) mean,
0: what more do you want? Yeah, I I would change national education policy based on Chris Farrell. Why why wouldn't I? (laughs)
1: There's an enormous push in recent years because of the 2008-2009 global credit crunch and all the foreclosures that were going on and a recognition that, like studies as we did those quizzes at the top, uh, that, you know, personal financial literacy is not very high in the American populace and trying to reach out to young people. And a lot of it, by the way, just to be perfectly frank, is public relations. You have banks that are saying, you know, financial literacy is important and we're going to fund a program over over here, But you also have a lot of nonprofit organizations uh, like Jumpstart that have very good programs, and they're trying to improve financial literacy. And in many places, what uh, is happening is that the requirements in the math class or the social studies class in trying to add at least some personal financial knowledge into the curriculum. My, my feeling is that if you're really going to do it, you're going to have to isolate it more than just add it into a math class or do a social studies class. Because frankly, a lot of those teachers don't really have much more knowledge than the average person when it comes to personal finance may know a lot about math but not necessarily personal finance.
0: And what are some of the best ways to teach personal finance to kids in school?
1: Okay, well, I have a very fundamental attitude toward teaching kids personal finance in schools. And part of it is, you know, most of us only learn a certain amount when you're having an abstract discussion. And what really matters is having, you know, real interaction with personal finance. So one of the movements that I like is credit unions. This is mostly credit unions, but it's also banks opening up a branch in high school. And you can have your savings account in there and you can open it with essentially a dollar 50 cents. There's no real requirement there. But you now have a place that you can go. You can deposit some of your savings if you're doing a little bit of work on the side, doing some babysitting, working at the pizza parlor. You can deposit your money there. And then there are programs that are putting these, uh, putting these credit union branches into very low-income neighborhoods, low-income high schools. Again, to try and make it concrete, make it real, what, it, what is a savings account? What is does it check? How do you open one up? And by the way, you don't want to go to a payday lender. You don't want to go to a rental furniture store when you graduate from high school, and that's where you're going to get your furniture in order to you know, have a place to sit down when you're first apartment and you're off on your own. So I think... Because
0: those things are uh, unusually expensive. They're a bad deal for the consumer.
1: They're a terrible deal for consumer. And this is where a lot of young people get themselves in the the trouble. And it is really striking, Stephen, that you can graduate from high school and, you know, within a couple of months have two credit cards.
0: Right. So uh, these are credit unions that have actual people in the school. It's not just an ATM.
1: That's right. It's actual people. Typically, we, I, I visited one in, in Hudson, uh, Wisconsin, which is a small town down by the river there, the St. Croix River. And I think if I remember correctly, it was uh, a janitor's closet. And they cleaned out the janitor's closet. It was a pretty big closet. And that's where they have their branch. And it's open at certain times of the day. And students use it. And again, it's all to encourage the sense of you're going to be graduating. You're going out into the real world. This is part of the real world. You should know how it works. But I, th- I like this notion of making it concrete.
0: Do you have an idea of how widespread this financial literacy concept is actually penetrating into high schools?
1: I think there's a lot more conversation than there is actual penetration into high schools. So part of it has to do with as you mentioned earlier on, you know, there's, we're, we're demanding a lot of our teachers. We're demanding a lot of our administrators and our school systems to deal with all kinds of issues. So part of it is how do you fit in? financial literacy into the school itself. And then in terms of having a credit union in your high school, I mean, that takes a lot of work. It takes a credit union or a bank that is willing to do that. So the movement is going in the right direction. I'd like to see it accelerated. Virginia passed a law where in order to graduate, you need to take an economics or personal finance class. They put it as part of the the social studies. And what they found out is a lot of social studies teachers didn't really like teaching the subject because they didn't really understand it all that well. And so what Virginia has done is if you are in your career and you want to have an encore career, a second career, there's an accelerated program if you're willing to teach personal finance and economics, which I met when I was in Washington, D.C., someone who's doing that whose life has been business, his life has been in personal finance, it has been in economics, and now he's going to be teaching that subject. So I think you're also going to see some accelerated programs to get a more qualified teacher to teach this particular subject.
0: Chris Farrell, thanks so much.
1: Thanks a lot, Stephen.
0: Chris Farrell is senior economics contributor to APM's Marketplace program. He's also the author of the new book Unretirement, How Baby Boomers Are Changing the Way We Think About Work, Community, and the Good Life. Andy's the host of the Unretirement podcast on APM's Infinite Guest Podcast Network. You can find a link to Chris's book and his podcast at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, you can find more podcasts about issues in K-12 and higher education. You can browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects, and you can let us know what this podcast made you think about, whether you might share it with friends or colleagues. AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, click on the About page and scroll down to Share Your Impact Story. We are on Facebook at American.RadioWorks and on Twitter at RadioWorks for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Lumina Foundation, and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM.